You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. As I was saying last time, one of the reasons Jesus chose the medium of parables was to get past a communicational impasse that after giving the Sermon on the Mount and the content of that teaching, life was beginning to shut down for him because of the opposition of the religious leaders, extending even to the confusion of his own family and the resistance that Jesus was meeting with uh, and in opposition to his teaching and to his identity. So the parables tend to divide the crowd from the disciples. In a way, he speaks in such a manner as to entertain the crowds with the stories and yet speak then by way of uh, separate interpretation to the disciples. So he uses the stories to teach the disciples and in a way the stories entertain the crowds. They're provocative in that sense. They usually have a twist that is unexpected. And I think that parables, as well as the content of Jesus' teaching, uh, comes together, especially in the Gospel of Luke. This is what I find interesting. I, in, uh, in the fall, I spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. And I came to realize then, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and how Jesus strategized communicating after that, that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke breaks up the Sermon on the Mount into various passages throughout chapters and oftentimes will accompany that teaching with a parable. So it's Sermon on the Mount plus parable. A portion of the Sermon on the Mount plus a parable. So Luke takes these parables and uses them illustratively in the content of the Sermon on the Mount. That's something I hadn't realized. Uh, So I'm reading from Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Through verse 34, it is on your uh, study guide. I hope you have one. Uh, Or you can follow along in your, your own Bible. Listen carefully. This is God's Word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man. Uh, You just, you get that right off? The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest? Not the rich man but the ground, the soil, the nutrient-laden dirt. That's what produces. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? The soliloquy. I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain, and I'll say to myself, or in the ESV, to my soul, 
You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now comes the interpretation to the disciples. It's away from the crowd. Then Jesus says to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what, will, what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven will never fail. Where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Lord God, with your word open, please open our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might understand. And through that understanding, by your spirit and your grace, be transformed. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Currently, one of the most comprehensive studies in the parables has been written by Clyde Snodgrass. And he writes about this particular parable. The message of this parable is as antithetical to our thinking as any that Jesus told. I know of no more difficult topic to apply personally to the lives of Western, modern Western Christians than this parable. My own relationship to money and to the church, I found interesting, I guess in this last decade in particular, uh, by the providence of God, Virginia and I were involved in a church at 64th in Park in Manhattan from 2007 to 2010. Every weekend we spent in New York on a church replant. A church that was very small at the beginning. It was uh, a building that Rockefeller had built for Harry Emerson Fosdick. The pulpit that I preached from was preached from by one of the most famous American liberal pastors 
in the 20th century. It was our concern to gospel this small congregation. And over time, it moved from the main line to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. In the last few years, from 2007 to 2010, we were involved and uh, a full-time pastor and staff uh, were put in place and we worked ourselves, as was the plan, out of the job. The building, badly in need of repair. Nothing has been done to it for decades. And over the last few years, they've raised $10 million out of a need of $15 million to renovate the facility. Simultaneously, Virginia and I have been involved in a ministry in northern Ghana. And that ministry, which is a church planting, and they've planted about 30 churches, and also a humanitarian, agricultural, medical, educational ministry, they have been struggling to raise $10 million for a hospital to cover thousands of Ghanaians without modern medical care. The wealthiest of the wealthy, 64th and Park, and the poorest of the poor in northern Ghana. And I guess the struggle of seeing I definitely believe that there should be a strong witness in New York City. I definitely believe that renovating this building that badly needed it was necessary. But lives are really at stake in northern Ghana. And I think both economies are vastly different. Both need these resources. But I struggle with the globalization of the church, the body of Christ, and how needs are met and the challenges that are posed. An African commentator on this particular passage, on the parable of the rich fool, begins with a story of Mahatma Gandhi before he was famous when he worked as a magistrate in South Africa in a village that had quite a collection of people from India. And a widow uh, came with her son to Gandhi as an authority figure to help convince the son that he needed to eat something more than sugar and candy. Simple. The widow came with her son and asked Gandhi, will you tell my son to eat a healthy diet? And Gandhi said, after pausing for a few moments, come back next week and I'll talk to you. So she left, came back a week later. And Gandhi said, come back next week. Now she was kind of miffed. She left, and the third week she came back. And Gandhi met with her and with her son, convinced the son of the importance of the diet. The son was convinced. Gandhi is an authority figure. They walked away, and the widow turned around as she was leaving and said, why did you make us wait three weeks for this? And he said, I didn't know how hard it was for me to give up sugar.
It's so hard to kind of preach on this issue uh, or to take a stance that is maybe not reflected in my own life for dealing with riches and material goods. The Bible has a lot to say on this subject, as we all know. Job declared this, and this is, very, this is an interesting quote in Job's defense of his righteousness. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I've rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune of my hands, if I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. And what Job is doing there is he's linking the sin of the idolatry of possessions to the sin of the idolatry of worshiping the moon and the sun. And what's striking about that is he really is combining both modern and pagan in just this one ancient description. The prophet Jeremiah summed it up really well too in the ninth chapter. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. Well, the question that the rich man, rich fool, uh, asks, well, not the rich fool, the lawyer or the uh, person asked of Jesus. The man's question implies that Jesus was perceived as a rabbinic legal expert. Someone in the crowd. Now, remember the dynamic between crowd and disciples. The stories are for the crowd. The interpretation is for the disciples. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, it's, really, it's an interesting question as to what is it that we want Jesus to solve in our lives? Why is it that we come to Jesus? What is the purpose of our coming? I think probably our churches are filled with people asking things of Jesus, myself included, that Jesus never intends to answer. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Was his brother right there? I wonder. Were the two of them showing up in the crowd? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is more complicated than it is on the surface. And isn't most of our questions more complicated than the surface? The ideal in an agricultural agrarian society would be for the land to stay in the family and for them to farm together. The request here, and by, uh, there's a reference in Deuteronomy that speaks of the elder brother receiving double the portion of the inheritance, and that probably was meant in order to keep the land more in the family. 
But in any case, there's a division here within the family and a kind of discord. And I think that Jesus, and he sees in this individual a larger issue, and Jesus always sees this, I think, more holistically. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That phrase is interesting, all kinds of greed. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. You know how easy it is to measure our sense of self-worth by what we own. And some of us have, you know, we've had the, the experience of having what we've owned sort of pulled out from under us. And you know the process of evaluation and self-questioning that that involves. Well, Jesus tells them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? Now, we can't read into this parable ideas like he's trying to monopolize the economy, Uh, he's trying to create a scarcity of product, he's trying to drive the price up. Uh, There's nothing to suggest that. And that's why you might call this the sensible materialist, the creative capitalist. Now, does he acknowledge that uh, this increased wealth is not of his doing, but it's because of the dirt. It's because of the nutrient-rich soil that produced this abundant crop. Often when we are blessed, uh, we don't realize the infrastructure um, and the, the nature of the reason for the increase. And it's a soliloquy, it's a monologue that goes on inside of this person. And I don't know how much we're supposed to read into that, the kind of inner monologue uh, that is not brought into a, uh, a dialogue uh, with God. It doesn't begin here by thanking God for the abundance, even though I think that any Jewish person would have anticipated that kind of uh, response or should have. If you turn the page, I say under number six, the whole food chain belongs to God because God has blessed the earth in ways that God has not blessed Mars with dirt that grows crops and people and animals that depend on the crops. And the ground is not only responsible for agriculture but for the industrial revolution and for smartphones. There's a lot more that comes out of the ground than wheat and soybeans. The, nature, the natural resources necessary for producing wealth are creation gifts over which we are not sovereign, but stewards. But that's not what the sensible capitalist is thinking. 
he's thinking to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Number eight, the inner monologue, the rich man's soliloquy, provides a window not only into his financial planning, but into his soul. We cannot conclude from Jesus' story that the man is trying to drive up the price of grain. All we can tell, and this is Jesus' point, is that the life, that his life consists of the abundance of his possessions. That seems to be the only criteria that he's really concerned about here. Self-worth, self-esteem, and success are all quantifiable. But the main point of the parable is not about economics or stewardship per se. It's emphatically about life. The word for life in the NIV is psyche, from which we get psychology. And it's often translated as soul. And so the measure of one's soul is at issue here. Now, in our secular way of thinking and writing, the soul has been reduced to self. A soul immediately implies something of the value of the person. And that value stems from an acknowledgement that we are made in God's image. That we are soulful people because of what God has made us to be. And we're not just self. Self is a reduction of the human person. This is not about necessarily the economy. This is much more to do with the person and the value of the person. And that's what comes through in Jesus' interpretation uh, with the disciples. Number 10, Jesus made this clear, the value of the soul is beyond our means. Many people have told us that we don't have a soul, and that's fairly modern and Western, but only one person has said we can't afford one. Only Jesus said that my soul is so expensive, that my soul, your soul, is so expensive that even if I gained the whole world, I couldn't afford my own soul. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Who we are and to whom we belong is a critical issue. Well, the inner monologue, what shall I do? is abruptly interrupted by the Word of God. You fool. You fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. Well, obviously, there's an eschatological sense, an end-time sense to this parable. It's often, it's suddenly framed in the much larger context of the whole meaning of life. And the meaning of one's life, your life, my life. The underlying subtext uh, in all of these parables, I ask of myself, did Jesus have to die to give this story? And I think we'd have to conclude, yes, indeed. This question doesn't mean a lot of sense if there isn't redemption, if there isn't atonement, If there isn't resurrection, 
if there isn't judgment. And if you're looking for a psalm that would fit with this, because that's something I'm always doing now in my study of the psalms, Psalm 14 fits. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And that's the, you know, fool in Hebrew is Nabal. And you remember the story, some of you are, are into knowing the Bible and its stories, the story of Nabal, uh, that uh, landowner who was approached by David with his servants to give food. David was on the run from Saul, and Nabal had been protected from bandits and robbers and his sheep and his crops had been protected by David and his men and this is explained to Nabal and Nabal doesn't give him anything and David's furious. So, okay, well, that's a picture of the fool. And so when God, Jesus, when the word is said to the man, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you, to the Hebrew mind, it harkens back to Psalm 14 and the Nabal story. Number 12, the debrief. Following the pattern in Matthew, Luke provides the interpretive context. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your psyche, your life, your soul, what you will eat, about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Now, let's explain that. It does say worry. It doesn't say think. It doesn't say you can't think about these things. It says you shouldn't worry about these things. But here's what Jesus does that I think is remarkable. Number 13 here, Jesus boldly reversed what is known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You heard about that in college, remember? Psychologist Abraham Maslow proposed in 1943 a theory of human motivation consisting of five levels. The most basic level consisted of physical needs, like food, clothing, shelter, and health. The second involves safety, security. The third, love and belonging. Fourth, self-esteem. And finally, fifth, self-actualization. Maslow argued that we need each of these levels somehow satisfied to move on to the next level. So your health has to be provided for, your security has to be provided for, you need to have a sense of community, and then your self-esteem is based on those factors, and finally self-actualization is realized. What Jesus did was turn Maslow's pyramid on its head said, no, before anything else, there is the relationship with God. And everything else is based on that. So from health to self-actualization is based on the realization and the response. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God is the beginning of everything else. And so that Maslow hierarchy is a beautiful secular hierarchy. But if God is at the center and if there is a living God in whom I have my image based on him, then there is a reversal. 
Number 14, Jesus makes the connection between the sovereignty of God and the family budget. You know, see, this all breaks down any compartmentalization that one might have in the Christian faith, uh, putting kind of a religion department over here and your business department over here and your kind of fun department over here. There is an integrative, holistic, centered understanding in God that Jesus is explaining to the disciples. We can say all we want about our heart being right with God, our devotion being to Him alone, but if we are consistently fretting about food or medicine or rent or car payments, our commitment is hollow. The refusal to worry and complain proves the integrity of our ambition to live life according to God's will. Jesus might have worded this challenge differently if he were writing to Americans, I dare you to rest your self-esteem on the clothes. How dare you rest your self-esteem on the clothes you wear or take pride in your gourmet food? Why are you so preoccupied with appearances and adventures that money can buy? Are you any different from the people who don't believe that I exist? Where are your priorities? What really counts in life anyway? Financial security or everlasting life? Stop thinking about more, 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 getting, getting, getting. Life cannot be measured in dollars and in real estate. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard the, uh, the illustration that Stephen Covey, the late Stephen Covey, the American educator who died in 2012, was kind of well known for a story, for uh, an enactment that he made in, with his audiences. He took a large jaw, a jar, a clear glass jar, and he filled it with rocks. And then he would ask his audience, uh, is it filled? And he would say, well, everybody would say, yeah, it's filled. And then he would take uh, pebbles and pour pebbles into the jar. And it even looked more filled, and he'd ask, is it filled? And, yeah, it's filled. And then he would take sand and pour sand into the jar. He said, well, now is it filled? And everybody said, well, yeah, of course. And then he would take water and pour water into the jar. And so he'd say, what's the point of this? And invariably, the audience would say, you can always get more in. And his response would be, no, you got to put the big rocks in first. And I think that's true to life in Christ. you got to put the big truths in first. If you're trying to fill it up with water and with sand and with grain, with pebbles, you're never going to get the big rocks in. Jesus requires a different set of first things. Kingdom values turn everything upside down. Our natural disposition, which is to focus on our basic needs and look out for ourselves, runs counter to putting our trust in God. For our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Where your treasure is, 
there will your heart be also. The parable of the rich fool. Now you know why I told you the Gandhi story. Because I think all of us deal with us, deal with this. It's a challenge for us living in this culture to set the right kind of big things as a priority. And I, you know, if I were elaborating further on this, I think you can only really do it in community, in the body of Christ. So it's with the people of God in Christ and it's the way that we kind of rub off on each other that encourages these priorities, that gives us a heart for people in northern Ghana even as there's a heart for repairing a beautiful church in New York City. Uh, There's a sense that somehow we've got to do both in God's kingdom work. And it's knowing how to do both that becomes really important for us, I think. Well, on this subject, I don't even want to open it up for questions. (laughs) I just want to give a benediction and uh, be done. And it's about that time. I can always tell when the ushers get nervous back there about saving room for the 11 o'clock people. (laughs) Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you uh, for this body of believers, for this household of faith. Please draw us into communion with you so that we will be a help to one another in our walk with you. We desire to be faithful. We desire to put the first things first. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.